Well, we will receive your money. I'm not sure if you'll actually receive a CD or not, but you can call the number or you can just mail in that check and see what happens. Take your chances. Uh, But anyway, uh, when it comes to songs like, you know, greatest hits, like we just heard, and probably many of you, you recognize a lot of those and could sing along in your head, that there's something about, you know, certain songs that we can hear over and over and over again, and that we can sing over and over and over again, and seemingly just not get tired of them. And those are the songs that I would say fall under the heading of of greatest hits. Because when it comes to a song that's truly, you know, like part of a greatest hits collection, those are the songs we just don't get tired of. Um, But when it comes to greatest hits and it comes to these songs which seemingly break out, you know, from other songs and, and they become a hit, have you actually ever thought about what makes a song a hit? Uh, how can a song actually evolve into or develop into or just seemingly overnight, you know, be a hit? Because not all songs that are written and not all songs that are performed, uh, they don't all become hits, but some do. Uh, you've probably not thought about that, but uh, I was a little curious about it, and so I did some reading about it. And it turns out that over the years, there have been you know a lot of thought and a lot of discussion and a lot of research that has gone into what makes a song a hit. And the consensus seems to be that, number one, if, if a song is going to become a hit, it's, it's got to have the right content. The lyrics have to be well-crafted, and the message of the song has to be well-received because it connects to a broader audience. So the content of the song, you know, what does the song say? What is the song about? You know, what is the takeaway? That's number one, the content. And then two, the content has to be compelling or or consequential, Uh, meaning that the song, you know, it creates emotion or or some some type of action. It it inspires in me. It inspires in you. It makes you clap. uh, It may make you dance. uh, It may make you smile. It may make you cry. It makes you feel you know, push, you know, put your fist in the air or whatever it is, but there's something compelling about the song and consequential about the song that brings on some type of response. So it's compelling and consequential. And then the third thing, uh, when you put all this together that, you know, takes a song and makes it a hit is the fact that it has the right melody. Uh, lyrics have to be melded to a melody that connects and sticks with people. It's got to be, you know, a little bit unforgettable, recognizable, reproducible. Uh, it's got to be something that the artist would actually want to sing, and it's got to be something that the audience would actually want to hear. And so that's how a song becomes a hit. And, and songs that, you know, become part of greatest hits collections, those are the songs, in my opinion, that give melody to life. It gives melody to our life, to your life, uh, to my life. That, that the songs that we tend to really enjoy and love and that we're drawn to, in some way it captures, you know, a sense of our feelings. It, it captures our experiences and it puts them into words. And it just happens to use rhyme and rhythm to do so. And, and one song uh, that does exactly this is, is the song that we just got through hearing. It's I Won't Back Down. It's one of my favorite songs by one of my favorite artists, uh, Tom Petty, and it was uh, first released on his maiden album, Full Moon Fever. Uh, it was released April 24th, 1989. So I, I was, you know, about, you know, 11 years old at that time. So, you know, I remember when this song first came out and I mean, you know, everybody was playing it on the radio. Everybody wanted the CD. You know, the single was super popular on MTV. Uh, but April 24th, 1989, And the story behind the song, which is always something that intrigues me, uh, I always look up to see if there's a story behind the song, because when you know the story behind the song, uh, you you kind of understand the song, and sometimes you like the song even better. But, But Tom Petty wrote this song after an arsonist tried to kill him. 
Um, a guy actually, or it could have been a woman, they were never found. So it could have been a guy, could have been a woman, but statistically, I think arsonists are, are men. So let's just go with that. Some guy, uh, he tried to burn down Tom Petty's home with him and his family inside. Uh, so he tried to kill him and his family. And on the backside of that, of course, Tom Petty and his family survived uh, along with their babysitter. But in, in response to that, you can imagine that was a pretty jarring situation when somebody tries to kill you by fire. Uh, that doesn't happen very often. So in, in response to that hardship and in response to, you know, the, I guess the trauma of it all, he, he wrote this, this song because it was one of the hardest seasons of his life, he, he would tell later. And then according to Tom Petty himself, he said of all of the songs that he wrote and performed. This was the song, I Won't Back Down. This was the one which had the most direct and powerful impact on the lives of his fans. Uh, he said that it, it was the song that most people would come up to him and want to talk about. It, it was the song that people would write him and, and want to say, thank you for writing this song. Thank you for singing this song. Because this song, which began as Tom Petty's personal mantra, uh, it was a mantra of resilience and courage and determination, of endurance and focus and tenacity. I won't back down. You know, I'm going to stand my ground. I'm not going to run away. I'm not going to fold. I'm not going to bow. I'm just going to, I'm not backing down. I'm facing this, this season of my life. It became other people's personal mantra and people who needed resilience and people who found themselves needing courage and determination and endurance and focus and tenacity. They latched onto this song and it became, it became their song because the song itself is an anthem of resolve, an anthem of resolve. And everybody from time to time will face something in their life. You'll face something in your life. I'll face something in my life where the thing that we need is resolve, that we need resilience, that we need determination, that we need tenacity, that there's gonna be moments and seasons where you face things and you face circumstances in your life. Really, the anthem of your life is gonna have to be, I won't back down. I won't back down. I'm not gonna run away from this. I'm not gonna bow down to this. I'm not gonna fold. I'm not gonna just run away in cowardice. I won't back down because I'm resolved. And this song by Tom Petty reminds me of the story that we're actually gonna look at today out of the Old Testament. Um, it's one of those stories that I would say uh, belongs to the Bible's greatest hits collection. Uh, it's one of those stories that we never get tired of telling. It's one of those stories at least for me, I never get tired of hearing because it's such a great story. Now, before we actually look at the story, I think um, I wanna tell you some things that you're gonna learn before you actually learn them from the story because it will help you have eyes to look for these things and ears to hear these things in the story that we're gonna read today. But this story, which I think is one of the Bible's greatest hits, it's gonna teach us and it's gonna remind us that obedience isn't the easiest way, but it is the best way. Okay, this is not new. This is pretty basic 101, you know, following Jesus, discipleship type of thing. But obedience isn't the easiest way. You know, it's the best way. Uh, doing the right thing is seldom easy. There, there's gonna be that element in the story today. Obeying God is seldom easy. There's certainly gonna be that element in the story today. Walking by faith, trusting God, seldom easy, but it's always best. And we're gonna see it in the story today. Another thing that we're gonna to learn today is that it is possible to hold on to faith even when facing the most difficult of circumstances. Um, painful circumstances, whether they're yours or mine, painful circumstances 
are unfortunate, but unfortunately, they are never an excuse to lose faith. Painful circumstances, as horrible and as painful as they may be, are unfortunate, but unfortunately, they are never an excuse to back down. They're never an excuse to walk away. They're never an excuse to bow or to fold. Uh, and, and so we're gonna see that in the story. Another thing that we're gonna learn is that saying yes to God will cost you something. Uh, saying yes to God always has a price tag. Trusting God always has a price tag. Obeying God always has a price tag. Uh, following God always has a price tag. And so we're gonna be reminded uh, of what we've already experienced and what we already know in life, that saying yes to God will cost you something. The question is, do you believe that it's worth the price? Do I believe that it's gonna be worth the price that I have to pay? Because saying yes to God will cost us something. And then another thing, this is a big thing. Even some of God's best will face some of life's worst. Uh, this is a really important lesson, especially for our current generation of, of students uh, and children who, you know, have, you know, maybe misplaced ideas about life and their expectations of how life will turn out. Uh, there, there's a lie that so many people, even inside the church, uh, believe because some people have been taught to believe this. A lot of people just believe that the better, the better we live, the better we live, the, the, more, the more things we get right, you know, uh, the more good things we do, the better we live, the better God will make our lives. That life just gets better in the sense that we have fewer problems, fewer disappointments, you know, less pain, fewer betrayals, that the better, the better we live, the better God will make life. And the easier, that's the real idea, that the easier God will make life, that your life is gonna get just easier when you decide to do the right thing, that your life is just gonna be easier. It's gonna be better in every way. Uh, and you're not gonna have to face some of life's worst. You're, you're not gonna have to face some of the, just some of the truly horrific things in life. Um, but that's not what we're gonna see in the story. A matter of fact, that's what, that's what we see all the time in, in people's lives around us every single day. But a lot of people believe that lie because they believe that, that faith is in some way a vaccine against suffering. But here, here's what we know is true. Life hurts and life stinks and it hurts people who have faith and it hurts people who, who don't have faith. So there's a lot of people walking around angry uh, because God didn't keep a promise that he happened to never make in the first place. So if you're one of those people, don't get angry at God when God doesn't keep a promise that he never made. And God never promised that if you do the right thing, if you do the good thing, that you will not have pain. You will not have difficulty. You will not have trouble. He, he never said that. And then the last thing that we're gonna learn is that the best case scenario is that God is in charge of my worst case scenario. This is one of my personal statements. It's in every journal I basically own. It's in every Bible I basically own. And, and it's something that I wrote a few years ago that, that I try to remind myself all, all the time because there's always a worst case scenario looming, I think, in most people's minds and most people's hearts. And, and, and we're almost trained to think worst case scenario in our culture and, and in the climate of things in our world. So it's a good thing to be reminded. And, and the story is gonna remind us today that the best case scenario is that God is in charge of my worst case scenario. Even if the worst case scenario, whatever that is, whatever that is for you, whatever that is for me, whatever that is for us, that God is in charge of our worst case scenario. So that's what the story is gonna teach us. 
Now for the story itself. Uh, The story itself begins with a king that perhaps we don't know that much about. His name is King Jehoiakim. And he was reigning around the year 605 BC. He's the second son of Josiah. Now, Josiah uh, led one of the greatest revivals in the Old Testament. And and the people of of God, the people of Israel turned back to God. And it was this amazing thing. And and it was really, you know, a catalytic experience that started with Josiah. Uh, His second son is Jehoiakim. And they're nothing alike. Uh, By the time that we meet Jehoiakim in 605 BC, he is the puppet king of Nico, the Pharaoh of Egypt. So uh, he works for for Pharaoh uh, and he's just basically a figurehead and his boss is the Pharaoh of Egypt, though he's allowed to maintain his title, you know, King of Judah. But as this is happening in 605, something has been going on for the previous few years over in the East. An empire that was once great is becoming great again. There is a renaissance of the Babylonian empire, an ancient empire that was great once upon a time that is becoming great again. And it's being led by a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. He's a famous king in both the Old Testament and also in in Far Eastern history and culture. And and the whole Babylonian experience, the whole Babylonian culture, it, it was known for it's my and it's magnificence. Uh, and Nebuchadnezzar is the leader of that. He, he's spearheading that. He's a gifted leader. He's a military general. Uh, he's getting things done and he's expanding this empire and it is becoming great once again. So it is a renaissance of the Babylonian empire. And Nebuchadnezzar decides that he wants to set his sights on Egypt. You know, it, it's, a, it's an ancient prize with lots of history and, and lots of magnificence in and of itself. So he sets his eyes on Egypt and he conquers Egypt. And after he deals with Egypt, he decides while I'm in the area, I'm going to just go north and I'm going to go into Judah and I'm going to visit Jehoiakim. So after Egypt, he goes on to Jehoiakim and he's going to pay him a visit. And the way that Nebuchadnezzar paid people a visit was he just stormed your city. He stormed your temple. Uh, and when he stormed the temple in Jerusalem, he collected, you know, a lot of the ancient artifacts and a lot of the sacred dishes, and he, he takes them for himself because it's his now. And he walks up to Jehoiakim, and he reminds them, hey, there's a new boss in town, and I am him. My name is Nebuchadnezzar, and now you work for me. So I'm going to let you keep your throne. I'm going to let you keep your title, but really, I am your king, and you are my puppet. And so as they would do everywhere, they would go and conquer, you know, a new territory, a new land, a new people. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians would take the best and the brightest, which would be part of the royal family and uh, part of the nobility. And, And they would take the best and the brightest and they would make them prisoners of war and they would take them back to Babylon and they would assimilate them into Babylonian culture. They would train them, you know, for two to three years and then they would put them into some form of service to the empire because they believed that this diversity made the, the, the Babylonian culture stronger. And if they could get the best and the brightest from all over the known world, it only means good things for the Babylonian empire. So that's, that's what they would do. And so we pick up the story right there in the book of Daniel. And it says, among those who were chosen to be taken back to Babylon, among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. It says the chief official, you know, they're being kind of uh, brought in and they're, they're given the 411. Uh, they're given like the intro to Babylon course. It says the chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. And this begins the process of their conditioning. 
this begins the, the moment where they are supposed to transition from being you know, overtly Jewish to overtly Babylonian. So they change their clothes. They give them new clothes to wear because they're in a brand new culture. They get new clothes. They pierce their ear. They change their name. Uh, they put them in the middle of a brand new culture with a brand new set of values and a brand new worldview. And the goal is, the goal is really clear to get these four guys, to get Daniel and his three friends to divorce their old values, to divorce their old faith and embrace a new set of values and a new set of faith uh, that will allow them to see the world in a much more Babylonian fashion. So their faith, their Jewish faith is coming under subtle pressure. And yet these, these young men, they know exactly what's happening. They're around somewhere around maybe 15 or 16 years old. And, and it tells us that Daniel though, he resolved, he decided not to defile himself with the royal food and the wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. So it's like Daniel speaking for the group because the group, they're also collectively making the same decision. And, and a lot of people have speculated about why they wouldn't you know, drink uh, the king's wine and why they wouldn't eat the king's food. And some say it's about you know, a kosher issue. Some say it's about you know, if they take the wine and the food of the Babylonians, that they would have to acknowledge that that food and the wine came from Babylonian gods. And in doing so, uh, they would be, insulting their own God that they believed was the one and true God, Jehovah. So they, they've got a decision to make and they've already made it. Uh, they had a decision to make, but they'd already made it. They decided uh, somewhere along the way before they got to this moment that they were gonna do the right thing. And they decided that they were gonna do the right thing even though they didn't know what doing the right thing would possibly mean for them. Uh, they decided that they were gonna do the right thing, that they were gonna pay the price of, of obeying God and trusting God and, and being you know, one of God's people in a foreign land, being Jewish in a Babylonian culture. They decided that they were gonna pay that price, whatever that price was ahead of time. So they decided they were gonna do the right thing ahead of time before they knew how anything would turn out as a result. So this, this instructor is telling them, hey, this, this is gonna be your food, this is gonna be your wine, and they're listening to it. And, and Daniel and his friend says, no, we're not gonna do that. We can't do that. Uh, we have a conviction in our heart. We, we can't do that. So let's try to strike a deal. So, you know, there's some winsomeness in what Daniel does here. Uh, he has the ability to, to speak across, you know, an ideological, you know, you know separation. And, and he tries to strike up a deal and he does. He says, hey, listen, I understand we're supposed to eat this wine. We're supposed to eat this meat. But what if for the next 10 days, well, let's do a 10 day experiment for the next 10 days, we are only gonna eat veggies and drink water. That's all we're gonna do for the next 10 days. And at the end of those 10 days, if you don't like how we are, if you don't like how we look, then we can revisit the situation. Because this instructor is kind of worried that if they don't eat the food, if they don't eat the wine, and if these guys look sickly, if these guys you know, look inferior, it's gonna mean that his head's gonna be on the chopping block. But, but he concedes to this 10-day experiment. And then at the end of the 10 days, after only veggies and water, it says they look better than everybody else. They look better than everybody else after veggies and water for 10 days. Some of you, that's what you're gonna remember at the end of this sermon. I'm gonna do 10 days of veggie and water and I'm gonna see, I'm gonna see if I look better than everybody else. But this was true of them. I don't know if it'll be true of you, but at the end of 10 days, they look better than everybody else. And it says to these four men, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds 
of literature and learning. So they were, they were top of their class. They were excelling. These guys were intelligent. They were intuitive. Uh, these guys were good. And it says, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them. Listen to this. He found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. So when he looked at Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when he looked at them, he says, you know what? These guys are good. These guys are so good. They're like 10 times better than everybody else that we've got on staff around here. They're 10 times better than anybody else in the royal court. 10 times better than anybody we got serving, you know, at any post. And so what does he do? Nebuchadnezzar's a smart guy. So he puts them in positions of leadership in the empire. So, so Daniel and his three friends, they begin to climb the ladder uh, of political success, maybe what we would even call cultural success, at least in the, uh, you know, the minds of the Babylonians. They begin to climb the ladder of success in Babylon as Jewish guys, as guys who are being true to their God, who refuse, who refuse to drink the king's wine and eat the king's food. It was something that they wouldn't back down from. It was something that they were insistent on and they pre-decided that they were gonna do it even before they knew what it might cost them. But at this point in the story, it's actually serving them well because they, they get positions of leadership. Then in chapter two uh, of, of Daniel, you can read about it, it's a great chapter. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, Daniel interprets it, which gives him even more access to the king and gets him even more open doors uh, in order to climb the ladder higher and higher in the empire. But then uh, in between chapters two and three, Daniel kind of fades away from the narrative and, and something, something happens. Nebuchadnezzar gets bored and he decides that he's gonna build something He's gonna build something that's gonna unite this very pluralistic, diverse empire that he's building because he's collecting all of these people. He's bringing back the best and the brightest and there's all these worldviews and there's all these you know, different ideas about religion and gods and gods and goddesses. And so he needs something that's gonna bring all of this diversity into a point of unity. So this is what the book of Daniel tells us that he did. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold an image of gold, 60 cubits high and six cubits wide, and he set it up on the plains of Dura in the province of Babylon. So this statue is 90 feet tall, you know, about nine feet wide. It's about a telephone pole and a half, you know, tall. So you can think about that. And, and it's made of pure gold and it's gonna take some time to build. And so during the building of this statue, which is meant to unify a very diverse kingdom, there's invitations sent out to its dedication and there's instructions given about what's supposed to happen at the dedication of the king's image. And so, you know, the invitation says, hey, you're cordially invited to be out on the plains of Dura on such and such day. And whenever you hear the music that's gonna play that day, the horns and the harps and the drums and, and all the things, when you, when you hear the band start playing, let me tell you what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to bow down to this image. You're supposed to bow down to this image. And in bowing down to this image, everybody would have common ground. And in bowing down to this image, this would be a point of unity amongst all the diversity of this growing empire. Now, everybody who received you know, this invitation, they were probably excited about it. I mean, it was a who's who. I, I mean, leaders from all over the empire came to this big event to inaugurate this big golden statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And they were told that if you choose not to bow down though, if you choose not to bow down, the consequences are gonna be very severe. And the text tells us that that whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing 
furnace. So the invitations go out, the instructions are given, and then on the day, everybody kind of, you know, they either get together out there on the plains of Durin. I mean, it is a who's who. I mean, it is a gala of galas. Everybody's there, they're decked out in their best robes. You know, there, there's a little bit of music playing, but the main band hasn't started playing yet. And, and you know, as everybody kind of hobnobs with everybody, shaking hands, how are you doing? Good to see you. How's things going over there? How have you been since you've been in Babylon? You know, things are good. Things have never been better. You know, we love our new job. We never love our new promotion. You know, Babylon's been good to us and you know, everybody's catching up. And then, then it was like, everybody could tell that the band was about to kick up and then the band, you know, they, they get going. I mean, they're loud and everybody hears it and everybody's received their instructions and everybody knows what they're supposed to do. And for everybody else who's there, it, this is not a big deal because they already have a handful of gods and goddesses and they've got a shelf of gods back home and, and adding one more God to their list of gods, that was no big deal. But to these Jewish guys, to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to these three guys to bow to an image like this, this would be high treason against God. This would be to break one of the Ten Commandments. You know, this would be like worshiping a graven image. This would be like, this would be just blasphemous. This would be one of the worst things that they could ever think of doing. But yet they were summoned to be there that day, just like everybody else. They're the best and the broadest. Babylon, in some ways, have been very, has been very good to them. They have positions of leadership and power, and they're going places. And so the band starts up, and for everybody else, what's the big deal? They just, they just bow down, and they worship this. They, they, they just go through the motions. You know, They do lip service, and they bow down to this image. But in the midst of who knows how many hundreds and how many thousands of people out there that day on the plains of Dura, that bowed in that moment, in that moment it became very obvious that there was three that did not bow. That as thousands of people react to the music with their eyes fashioned on that golden image and as they all bowed down and began to worship, it was obvious that three were still standing, three had pre-decided before they got there that day that they were not going to bow down, that they would not back down from their convictions. They would not back down from what their faith dictated to them. And their hearts were grieved. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're standing. Everybody else is down. And so there's some people, you know, some handlers for Nebuchadnezzar who don't particularly like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because uh, everybody's talking about how smart these guys are and that means they're smarter than these other guys and these other guys who are not smarter than these guys decide that, hey, look, those guys, they're not bowing. And so they go to Nebuchadnezzar and they said, hey, King, you know how you, you know, we sent out the invitations, sent out the instructions and said, hey, when the band starts, everybody's supposed to bow down. And if you don't bow down, you're supposed to be thrown into a hot, fiery furnace. You remember how you said that? And the king's like, yeah, I remember how I said that. There's three not bowing. He's like, what? There's three not bowing. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and part of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar knows these guys. He's promoted these guys. He's put these guys in, into their places of position and leadership. And, and so I'm sure it was like bothersome to him because it's like, man, this is my best and the brightest. And, and so he, he does what a king does in that moment when somebody doesn't listen to you. It says, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
And so these men, these men were brought before the king. And not just the king, but really the most powerful man on the planet, the most powerful empire on the planet at that moment. And I imagine that Nebuchadnezzar, you know, I can just see, this is kind of not in the Bible. This is kind of my imagination, but I can imagine him looking at them and saying, guys, listen, I believe in you. I have believed in you. I still believe in you. I really believe in your future. I'm in your corner. I don't know if you know it, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but these other jokers over here, they hate your guts. They hate your guts. They wanted the job that I gave to you and I didn't give it to them. And so they don't like you. They don't like you, but I'm a pragmatist and I'm king. And you don't get to become king of an empire like I'm a king over, unless you're pretty smart. And I'm just telling you, I've got a lot of smart people around me and you're some of the smartest and I want you to continue to be around me. But the only way that you can continue to be around me is if you bow down to this image when the music starts back up. So I'm gonna give you a mulligan, I'm gonna give you a redo. I'm here for you, let me help you. So when you hear the band, we're gonna, we're gonna kickstart the band. We're gonna shut them down. We're gonna restart it. Everybody's gonna bow again. And when everybody bows, just bow with them and, and it's gonna be okay. You can keep your position. You can keep your life. You, 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 can, you cannot burn up today. You, you cannot die by fire. So just, just bow down. It's what you need to do. It's what's gonna be best for you. And then Nebuchadnezzar looks at him though because he's king and he knows how to talk you know, directly and forcibly. He says, but, but if you do not worship, I don't want you to be under, under you know, any false ideas. If you do not worship the image, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Because guys, I just wanna, I just wanna give you a quick history. If you remember a few years ago, 605 BC, matter of fact, I went into your city, which was supposedly God's city. So I went into God's city and then I went into his house, the temple. You remember that? I went into his house and then I stole some of his furniture. I liked his furniture, your God's furniture. I took your God's furniture and brought it back to my house. I took some of his dishes. They were nice. They were gold and, and they were beautiful and they were sitting on this nice gold table. I brought the table and I brought the dishes. I brought your God's dishes back to my house. I destroyed a lot of part of your God's city and I left his temple, his house, empty. You know what that means, guys? Because I walked out of there and my army walked out of there and your God did, he did that. He didn't do anything. So that means my God, Marduk, is bigger than your God, Jehovah. Matter of fact, let's just be honest. What that really means is I am bigger than your God. I am bigger than your God because I went in and I took what I wanted from your God and your God couldn't stop me. So, that's the history of this moment. If I throw you into the furnace, who's gonna help you? He didn't even defend himself when I went into his city and into his house and I took his people. So here's these guys, they're standing in front of Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man on the planet. And essentially Nebuchadnezzar puts it out there you know, in an ultimatum, you bow or you burn, you bow or you burn, you bow or you burn. And you know what you call this? You call this a bad situation. You call this a hot mess. You call this, this is bad. This is real bad. This is about as bad as it can. You know what you call this? You call this a worst case scenario. You bow or you burn. There's no good choice. You bow and you break God's commandment. You bow and you commit treason against God. If you refuse to bow, you're gonna burn. It's a bad moment. Now, I think I know me and I think I know you 
I think we would have been very tempted, very tempted to justify a rationale, to justify a way of thinking that would have allowed us to bow in that moment. You know, we would have said to ourselves, you know, well, it is probably better to be alive than be dead. And guys, we are pro-life. Aren't we pro-life? We're pro-life. And that means that we are pro, pro our life? Yeah, we're pro our life. So we're better off alive than dead because who's for death? God's not for death and we're, we're for God. And if God's not for death, we're not for death. So yeah, we could probably bow. And I, I, think, we're, I think we're pretty theologically stable on that. You know, guys, if we don't bow, then, you know, life, life continues and life can even be better. We can get even better positions and that means more influence. And who knows, in the end, we may actually even be able to win these these infidels over, these heathens over. So if we're dead, we can't win them back to faith, our faith, but if we're dead, it's, it's over. So, I mean, they could have come up with some things and I'm sure we could have come up some some things, you know, because we're all good at justifying, you know, when it comes to justifying things that we know we shouldn't do, but yet we wanna do. And we come up with a reason, we come up, you know, with a rationale. And, and we've all done this before, you know, when, when we're forced with a, a bow moment, bow before this, bow before this or this. Uh, we've all made a decision at some point in time to justify bowing to the easy thing, uh, the desirable thing, the thing that we know is not right. Uh, we all have the capacity and the propensity to justify um, doing something that we know that God wouldn't want us to do. And it's, the not, it's not the right thing to do. We, we all have that capacity and propensity. And, and these guys are no different. These guys are not, these guys are not superheroes. They're not, they're, they're just like you and me, but they have pre-decided that they're not gonna bow. And they predecided that, hey, we believe that saying yes to God will cost us something. And we have predecided that whatever saying yes to God costs us, so be it. So be it. And so, you know, they could have wrestled, you know, excuses to the ground that would have justified it and made, it, made them feel good about their decision. But, but they didn't. They didn't. They didn't do that. And we've all got to do our best not to do that in the moments when we're tempted to bow to temptation or bow to sin or bow to what is easy but not right. Even if we think it's going to make us happier or more fulfilled or feel more significant, you know, even if you can come up with a justifier, rationalize, you know, rationalize it, they could have, but they didn't, and we should follow their lead. And so he says, you either bow or you burn. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Now, I wanna point out a couple of things before we look at the next verse. In this very trying moment where emotions are running high, I want you to pay attention to how courteous and respectful of the king, this king who has just threatened to throw them into a burning furnace, this king who has you know, basically commanded them to bow down and worship his image. Listen to how they talk to him. They say, king, King Nebuchadnezzar, very respectful. Hey, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If, 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 if we are thrown, it says, if we don't know for sure, you may change your mind, probably not. Uh, by the look in your eye, probably not. But if, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, if that happens, the God we serve is able. You say he's not, you don't believe he is, but we believe that our God is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesties. Well, still respect, not insulting. Will rescue us from your majesty's hand. 
We have no idea, Nebuchadnezzar, how this is gonna turn out. We have no idea how this is gonna turn out, but we believe that God is bigger than this moment that we're not sure how it will turn out. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego found the faith that was not shaped by their circumstance. They found a faith that was standing in the face of their circumstance. They had a faith that wouldn't back down from their circumstance. They believed that they were in a bad moment, but they also believed that even though they were in a bad moment, they still believed that their God was good and they still believed that God could take their bad moment because he is good and turn it for good. They believed that this was a costly situation. To do the right thing was gonna cost them and it was gonna be difficult and it was gonna be hard, but God was worth it. That God was worth it. They were not gonna, they were not gonna, they were not gonna bow. Things were out of their control, but yet they decided in this moment, the only thing that we can do, the only thing that we can do is trust. We can only trust God in this moment because we can't control it. But we believe that God is ultimately in control. So they're in this situation they can't control. But the only thing they can control is what they believe about God. What they have already decided is true about God. And the only thing that they can control in this moment is what they do in light of what they have chosen to believe about God. And it reminds us that in the face, in the face of a future that you can't control, there is peace in knowing that your heavenly father is in control. In the face of a future that you can't control, because really control is just an illusion. I mean, what can we control? We can't control what happens in Washington. We can't control what happens around the world. We can't really even lots of times control what's happening in our own communities, our own families. But in a future full of things we can't control, there is peace in knowing. There is peace in knowing that our heavenly father, your heavenly father, my heavenly father, that he is in control. And if I can't control it, but I believe that he is in control of it, and I believe that his heart is good, then I can trust him with a future that I can't control because I believe that he is in control of that future. And so this is where these guys are. And they say, hey, we believe that God is able. But even if he does not, they said, we believe that God's able to deliver us. We believe that he can. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. We believe that God can, hey, that's faith. We believe God's able, that's faith. But they had bigger faith than just believing that God can. They had bigger faith than just believing that God's able. They had faith that was so big and so deep and so mature that not only did they believe that God could, but they also believed by faith that even if God chooses not to, they were still gonna be okay. That even if God chose not to intervene, even if God chose not to do anything and they were thrown into the fire and it cost them everything, they still decided we won't back down. We won't bow. They had this defying stubborn faith in the face of circumstances they couldn't control that was gonna cost them their life. And defiant of their feelings and in defiance of this moment, they said, we're not gonna bow. Because you know what their anthem was? Their anthem, their resolve was that God can, God may not, either way, we're gonna be okay. This is another one of those statements that stays in every Bible I basically own. God can, that's faith, that's faith. 
You should believe that God can. You should believe that God can move mountains. You should believe that God can do miracles. You should believe that God can do the impossible. You should believe, I should believe all of those things. That's faith. Faith is believing God can, but bigger faith, bigger faith, I think, may be believing that God may not. Understanding that God may not. But either way, whether God does or God doesn't, whether God intervenes or God doesn't intervene, either way, we're gonna be okay. Whether God answers our prayer in this or he doesn't, either way, we're gonna be okay. So what happened? End of the story. Nebuchadnezzar, he's not impressed. He's not impressed by their faith. So he has them bound. He has the furnace heated seven times hotter than normal. And it was so hot that it says that the soldiers who threw them in died in the process. So they threw them in, shut the doors, and they waited for the smell and the screams. And when they didn't smell anything and they didn't hear anything, Nebuchadnezzar got curious and he, he looked in and he says, I thought we put three in. Did we put three in? Put three in, right? Three, but there's four, I'm counting four. And, and there four, one, two, three. And the fourth is, looks like, looks like a God, looks like the son of God, a son of God who's just walking around in the midst of the fire. And I see the three, they're not burned up. They're not consumed. And in that moment, Nebuchadnezzar, he realized something, that God had joined, that the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had joined them in the fire in that moment. And he was preserving their life there with them, that God had stepped into the moment with them. And it says that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, Nebuchadnezzar says, come out. Come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they came out of the fire. They came out of the fire. Now, that's a great ending. But the ending is not the point of the story. I think one of the greatest points of the story is the faith that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had, a faith that believe that God is able, but a faith that also conceded God, God may not, but either way, we think we're gonna be okay. Now there's gonna be moments in your life and there's gonna be moments in my life when we are brought to a moment and we are pressured to bow. We're, we're pressured to bow. And we know we're not supposed to, but we're pressured to bow. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego reminds us that it's best to predecide what you believe about God in those moments. That you know and understand that even some of God's best are brought to some of life's worst moments. That you already have predecided that you believe that saying yes to God will cost you something and you believe that God is worth it. That you've already predecided that you're going to hold on to faith and cling to faith even in the most difficult and the trying of circumstances that you've already predecided that God is in control of this worst case scenario and that you believe even when things are bad that God is good and because God is good, he can take what is bad and he can turn it good for you and for others. That when you're in a moment that you can't control, you trust a God that you believe is in control because your personal mantra, your anthem is that God can God may not, either way, I'm gonna be okay. Even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm gonna predecide that I'm not gonna fear any evil. 
Even when I come to the rivers, I, I'm, I'm not gonna be afraid because the waters won't overtake me. And even when I come to the fire, I'm gonna be confident that the fires will not consume me. I'm gonna predecide that even when I fall down seven times, I'm gonna believe that a righteous man, a righteous woman will get up yet again. That when tears come, I'm gonna predecide that I know that weeping may endure for the night, but I know that joy, joy will come in the morning. If I get sick and the doctor says there is no hope, I'm gonna to choose to believe that God can heal me if he desires to. But even if he doesn't, I'm gonna to choose to believe that to be absent from my body is to be present with the Lord because I know the one who said, I am the resurrection and I am the life. And though you may die, yet shall you live. That I'm gonna predecide to have the faith of Job that says, though he slays me, yet I will hope in him. That he gives and he takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord either way that he knows the way that I take. And when I come forth, I shall be like gold that has been tried in the fire. And I'm gonna to choose to be like Habakkuk and have the faith that says that the fig tree doesn't bud and there's no wine in the bottle and there's no cattle in the stalls. Yet even then I will rejoice in God. That I'm gonna have the faith of Jesus that says, Father, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not what I will let your will be done. There's freedom in believing that God can and knowing that God may not, but either way, you're okay. It says they trusted in him and they defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. When they were willing to lose their life, they found new life. Jesus said, if you're willing to lose your life for my sake, going to find it. So when it comes to bow or burn, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego says, predecide you'll never bow. You won't back down. You'll stand your ground because there's freedom in believing that God can, God may not, but either way, you're going to be okay. And I'm going to be okay. Heavenly Father, Thank you for the faith of men and women who have walked before us, lived before us, that teach us the type of faith to aspire to. Because God, I'm not sure if I have that type of faith today, but I know that I want that type of faith. And I believe we all do. So Father, speak to our hearts. Let us have the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that believes that you can, but even if you choose not to, either way, we're gonna be okay. In Jesus' name.